You know, church, as we navigate this cultural crisis with coronavirus, it has been interesting to me to make some observations about our culture. You know, on the one hand, perhaps you, like me, have seen just unbelievable moments of kindness and generosities in some spaces. I was out for a walk with my dog in our neighborhood, and, you know, there's, there's people out that I wouldn't normally see, and they're unusually friendly. <laughs> if, you're, if you're an extrovert, you're like, people! Like, hey, how you doing? I don't even know your name, but it's good to see you. On the other hand, there's this eerie reality of when you go to the grocery store and people are keeping their distance, or you find it strange that all of the shelf of flour is like gone. It's just this, this, this eerie reality. And, and part of the challenge of this crisis is that it has affected everyone. Unlike other crises in our nation's history, like 9-11 or the Great Recession, these in my lifetime, these moments were traumatic. But the thing about them is that the scope wasn't nearly as large. This cultural crisis has struck everyone and particularly has struck some of our systems. Our medical system, our economic system, our government system, even our church system have been negatively and significantly impacted. And one of the humbling effects of this is the realization that the brokenness of humanity is not something that is merely individual. Our relationships, our conflicts, our sin issues, how we act, it is certainly that. But our brokenness affects everything that human beings create. So Romans 13 tells us that the governing authorities are a part of God's good common grace in the world. So they're good things, good government and good medical systems and good institutions. They're all part of God's plan to bring order in the midst of a chaotic world. But the Bible also tells us that the world has fallen short of the glory of God. Individually and corporately, the entire creation groans. And part of that groaning is that we feel the effects of the limitations of our humanity and the way that that saturates everything that we attempt to create. The Bible often uses a word to describe these systems or these structures. It is the word authority. It means to rule, to govern, and to bring justice. Now, what does that have to do with John chapter 18 and 19? Well, in our text today, we see the collision of three authority systems. We see the collision of the Roman government. We see the collision of the Jewish religious establishment and the collision of Jesus' authority. And in this relatively dark text, we see the way in which Pilate and the Roman government and the Jewish leaders, like with Caiaphas and Annas, collude together in order to commit the greatest injustice in human history, and all of them are wrestling with one key issue, and it's this. What do we do with Jesus' authority? What does Pilate do with Jesus' authority? What does Caiaphas do with Jesus' authority? And that's a question that doesn't just relate to the Bible times. That's a question that relates to us today. It relates to you. You may be watching this and you're not yet a Christian, maybe somebody who's in your home is a follower of Jesus, they're watching this live stream and you're just there watching and we're so glad that you are. And one question that every person has to answer is this, what do you do with Jesus? 
And in our text today, we're going to see the way in which Pilate and the Jewish authorities failed in how they thought of Jesus and their failure becomes a representative or a representation of all of our failure as human beings. At the end of this message, I'm gonna help you see the hope that's here, but we need to walk through this text carefully to see the way in which Pilate and the Jewish establishment was guilty of four things, manipulation, interrogation, corruption, and rejection. I wanna show you these four heavy words, and I promise you we're gonna get to hope at the end. I'm gonna resolve it, but you need to see the depth of what John wants you to feel in this text, because at issue is, what do you do with Jesus? And Pilate and the Jewish establishment do what so many people do. They try and manipulate him. They interrogate him. They use corruption to silence him, and eventually they reject him. So let's see what the text has to say. First, manipulation. We find that Jesus, after his arrest in the garden and Judas's betrayal and Peter's denial, comes from the house of Caiaphas, according to verse 28, and he's led to the governor's headquarters. This was the temporary resident of Pontius Pilate, who was the appointed governor of Judah under the authority of the Roman government. During this time, the Jewish people were an occupied state. Rome had come in, and they allowed them some level of local control and expression of their own religion, but it was under the brutal and careful eye of the Roman government, and Pilate was the one there in order to advance Roman interests. He'd been at this post for about four years. His goal was to be sure that the peace was kept, Rome's interests were managed well, and that the people kept paying taxes. But there were frequent altercations. The Jewish historian Josephus tells us that when Pontius Pilate arrived as the new governor, he brought ensigns into Jerusalem carrying the image of Caesar. And the result of setting these images of Caesar in the city of Jerusalem created a protest on the part of Jews who traveled to Caesarea, the headquarters of the Roman government in Israel. They went to protest. They sat, fasted, and refused to move. And when Pilate brought in the troops, he realized that they were ready to die rather than move, and he had to relent. He lost his first public battle with Jewish passion. Josephus also tells us that Pilate took funds that were supposed to be used for the temple and he used them to construct an aqueduct for Jerusalem. And during a protest, Roman soldiers disguised themselves as Jewish protesters and under a command from Pilate, the soldiers revealed themselves, beat and killed a host of Jewish people. Luke 13 records another incident where a group of Galileans were killed as they were worshiping. The text says that Pilate mingled their blood. So Pilate was a brutal, stubborn, and arrogant ruler. And being the governor of Judah was probably not a popular role. And many little governors like Pilate were called back to Rome for a failure of leadership. So Pilate, you need to understand, when we come to this text, is under enormous pressure. What's more, this is the Passover. So thousands and thousands of Jews have flooded the capital city. 
Pilate moves from Caesarea to Jerusalem to set up a post to be on the ground in the event of some sort of riot or insurrection or issue. And needless to say, the relationship between Pilate and the Jewish leaders was on shaky ground. Pilate wanted to use them, and they wanted to use him, and manipulation just leaks from this text. Notice, the text tells us in verse 28 that it was early morning, and these religious rulers did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled, but they could eat the Passover. So John loves irony, and he wants you to see that here are the Jewish leaders have arrested the Son of God. They bring him to the headquarters, temporary headquarters of Rome in the city of Jerusalem, and they won't go into the building because they're worried about being unclean. John wants you to shake your head. They are creating an enormous injustice. And yet, in their religious hypocrisy, they are more worried about being unclean than they are about the injustice of what they are doing to Jesus. They believe that Jesus has to be stopped. In, in John eleven forty eight, 48, one of the religious leaders said, we have to stop him lest Rome come in and take our nation away. From their standpoint, the protection of the entire nation was on the line. So before we go further in this text, can I just remind you that the manipulation that the religious leaders embrace, even the religious hypocrisy that they embrace, didn't stop in the first century. I trust you know that we as human beings are prone to manipulate circumstances all the time to our advantage. Part of the challenge of even the season that we're in is that everything feels out of our control we want to manipulate circumstances. And in some cases, we manipulate them to the benefit of ourselves and the detriment of others. One of the things that I'm learning through this season is just the realization of how little I thought about how out of control my life really was even before this moment. Human beings were prone to try and grab control to try and manipulate the circumstances. And here we see this happening in full view, in verse 29, Pilate went outside to them. Notice this ruler has to go outside. They won't come in, so he has to go to them. And he says, what accusation do you bring, about, bring against this man? So he comes and says, what is the charge? No doubt he likely knew that the troops had been sent to the Mount of Olives, to the Garden of Gethsemane. And they respond to him this way. Look at this. Listen to this manipulative answer. If this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. They don't answer the question. They don't answer the direct question as to what he has done that is specifically wrong. Instead, they, in effect, say to Pilate, how dare you question if we would do something that somehow isn't straight up? How, question you, you, how, how dare you question us that somehow we were, are bringing to you an innocent man there answer is evasive and arrogant. They want Jesus dead, they want him silenced, and they don't care what it takes. Pilate then says to them, notice the tension between Pilate and these religious leaders, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. Pilate doesn't want to get involved. Again, he's trying to manipulate the circumstances, so are the religious rulers. He senses that something isn't right about all of this. And he's right that it's not right. And then the Jews respond in this way. They say to him, it is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. Notice their appeal to the law. 
We can't violate the law and put someone to death when they're violating the law by bringing Jesus to Pilate in the first place. John wants you to feel the ironic outrage that's implicit in this text. He wants you to see the brokenness of these leaders as they try to navigate their way around Jesus. He wants you to know the depth of our brokenness. And yet notice what he says in verse 32. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. In other words, even, listen to this, even the manipulative nature of these leaders, even the manipulative reality of Pilate doesn't circumvent the sovereign power of God. Can I just remind you today that in the middle of the worst, darkest moment in human history, the sovereign plan of God was still at work. Even, yes, in the crucifixion of Jesus, God was orchestrating all, event, all events according to his plan. So the first dark picture that we see is this issue of manipulation. Now, secondly, interrogation. So sometimes people move from trying to manipulate the circumstances, and then when they can't get around Jesus by manipulating, they begin to ask some questions. And these questions are often revealing. Verse 33, Pilate enters his headquarters again, called Jesus, and he said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Interesting, all four Gospels record this question. It was the charge that the Jewish leaders levied against Jesus in order to arouse Pilate's interest. In fact, they're saying that Jesus, by claiming to be the king of the Jews, is threatening stability. This is a national security issue, Pilate. That's why you need to be concerned. Jesus then asks Pilate if he says this of his own accord in verse 34, or if others have said this about him. Jesus is inquiring as to what Pilate means by king of the Jews. And then Pilate responds with disdain. You can just hear the arrogance when he says, am I a Jew? Your own nation and the Chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? The idea is these are your people. They brought you to me. What did you do? Jesus answered, and this is a key text. If you're going to underline a verse in this paragraph, it would be this one. He says this, my kingdom is not of this world. That's a huge statement. He says to Pilate, my kingdom is not here. There's a kingdom here, and you're in charge of a little kingdom, but my kingdom is not of this world. He then says, if my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from the world. This is what John wants you to see, that there are two realities going on at the same time. One, we have this earthly issue, but we also have the sovereign plan of God that's at work. That there's a there's a, a kingdom on earth, but Jesus is saying, but there's a bigger reality that's in play here. Pilate can't see beyond the veil of his own humanity. He doesn't see the bigger picture. He doesn't know what the prophet Daniel said when he wrote this in Daniel 2, that God changes times and seasons. He removes kings and he sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. Pilate has no clue that the only reason he's in his seat is because of the grace of God in his life, the common grace. He thinks he has authority? Pilate has no idea who he's dealing with. What's more, he doesn't know about the, the fabric of Jesus' kingdom, his ethic. He doesn't know that the kingdom of Jesus is marked by, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. 
Pilate doesn't know, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Pilate only thinks in terms of diplomacy, military might, and taxes. He doesn't know about love. He doesn't know about forgiveness. He doesn't know about atonement. He doesn't know about being born again. And what Jesus does here is he identifies the dual reality, not only for him, but anyone who claims to be his followers. That friends, listen to me, we live even now in two kingdoms. We live in two worlds. We live in the United States of America, but Jesus is our king. We pray for those in political office. We ask God to give them wisdom. We're thankful to be citizens of an earthly country, but we long for a heavenly country. We call the city of Indianapolis our home, but the Bible has always called us exiles. And here is Jesus saying to the ruler of the most powerful nation on the planet at that time, who's the authority connected to Rome, here is Pilate and Jesus says to him, I have a kingdom, but it's not of this world. Can I just remind you that that has always been the footing upon which Christians base their lives. So then Pilate says to him in verse 37, so you are a king? (laughs) Jesus answers, you say that I am a king. And for this purpose, I have come into the world. For this purpose, I was born, rather. And for this purpose, I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. So Jesus is saying that part of my kingdom is this prevalence of truth. And he who hears the truth understands what the nature of Jesus' kingdom is. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. This sounds like what Jesus said earlier when he said, my sheep hear my voice and they follow me. And Pilate responds, not with a broken heart to listen to what the king of kings is saying, but instead with a snide, cynical remark. What is truth? Pilate doesn't want to listen to Jesus. Friend, I hope this isn't like you. I hope you're not wasting this difficulty that we're in. You know you can waste this, right? I mean, it's hard, it's very difficult, but you know, God wants to use the circumstances of the pressure of this moment to help us to think about who we are and where our foundation is and what we base our lives upon. And you could waste this by just dismissing it. Say, ah, it's a bunch of just pie in the sky, hopey religion. Here's Pilate. Jesus is right in front of him. And he says, what is truth? Here's the way, the truth, and the life embodied. The one who said, no one comes to the Father except through me. And all Pilate can say is, what's truth? His interrogation, his manipulation, along with the Jews, next leads to corruption. What follows is a series of attempts on the part of Pilate to use his power and authority to extricate himself from the situation. He attempts to creatively use his authority to end this standoff. Verse 38. After he said this, he went back outside of the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. Now at this point, Pilate should have just released him. He's not guilty. I'm not participating in your thing here. But the thing is, is Pilate isn't interested in the innocence of Jesus. He's interested in being sure that something doesn't blow up in Jerusalem, so he's willing to do things on the side in order to preserve what in his mind is the bigger issue. Namely, I don't want to get in trouble with the emperor. So he concocts an idea. 
a pardon, a custom. I will lease a man to you at the Passover. So the Roman government apparently had a little PR thing that they did in the Passover. They released a prisoner as a sign of good faith during this festival. He says, so do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? Notice he uses this again. Pilate is in their grill. You want me to release the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. And the text says, now Barabbas was a robber. Barabbas apparently was a well-known individual. The word robber here means one who seizes plunder. So he's not some petty thief. He's likely some sort of insurrectionist. Think of him as a terrorist, if you will, who was involved in some sort of um, riot or protest or activity that resulted in him stealing goods, maybe weapons. He's well known. And they say, give us Barabbas, but don't let Jesus go free. In a great twist of irony, Jesus is exchanged for an insurrectionist. Chapter 19, we find then that Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. So here's the next thing that he does. If he can't work out a pardon, if he can't convince them that he doesn't think that Jesus is guilty, then he's going to physically punish him and hope to engender the sympathy of the Jewish leaders. Flogging was a brutal form of punishment. It involved a whip with pieces of bone and other fragments embedded into the leather of the whips. I'll, I'll spare you all of the additional details, but the, suffice it to say that many prisoners died from such a beating. So Jesus is flogged. And then John wants you to know that while he's away from the crowds, the, the, the soldiers, they use their authority, their power, and they begin twisting together a crown of thorns thorns and they, they, they put it on the head of Jesus and they put a purple robe on him and they come up to him. These are Roman soldiers and they're saying to him, mocking him, hail king of the Jews, hail king of the Jews. And they struck him with their hands. And John wants you to see the complete deconstruction of civility, the way in which humanity is just crazy off the rails here in terms of soldiers now jumping into the mix of this sort of bloodletting moment of mocking the king of the Jews. Their hatred for the Jewish people, their frustration with all that they deal with. The Jews hate them, they hate the Jews, and here's their king, so they're going to have their day. Verse 4, Pilate went out again. So Jesus is in the back. Pilate comes out and he says to the Jews, behold, I am bringing him out to you that you may know I find no fault in him. So he's going to bring him out, and hopefully this will appease them. So verse 5, Jesus came out, and imagine this moment. He comes out. He's wearing this crown. He has the purple robe. He's beaten to a pulp. And Pilate says to them, behold the man. It's embedded with mockery. This is your king. He's trying to force them to back down. The corruption of the soldiers, the corruption of Pilate, it's incredible. And then finally, rejection. So manipulation, interrogation, corruption, finally here, rejection. So Jesus comes out wearing this robe, 
Pilate says, behold the man. In verse six, when the chief priests and officers saw him, they cried out, they start shouting, crucify him, crucify him. Now they, they didn't say stone him. No, they wanted crucifixion. Why crucifixion? As we'll talk about next week, because crucifixion meant accursed by God. It meant that he was hanged and that God was displeased with him. And these Jews are not content to just have Jesus die. No, 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 no. Their problem is not just his life. The problem is his message. They have to not only kill him, they have to disqualify him from the hearts of the people. So they need crucifixion, but they can't crucify him. They need Pilate in order for that to happen. Pilate said to them, take him yourself and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. And the Jews answered him, we have a law that according to that law, he ought to die because he has made himself the son of God. Ah, here we go. They've never said this before. They said he makes himself to be king. Now it shifts. They say he makes himself to be the son of God. In verse eight, when Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. Pilate's thinking, wait a minute, wait, 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 wait. who am I dealing with here? He entered his headquarters again, verse 9. He asked Jesus, where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. Pilate said to him, will you not speak to me? Here's another really important text. Do you not know that I have authority, there's that word, to release you and authority to crucify you? Here is Pilate talking to the Son of God and saying to Jesus, I have authority. <laughs> I have authority. It's in my power to release you or to kill you. Speak to me. And Jesus answered him, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. Well, that landed on Pilate. Because in verse 12, John says, from then on, Pilate sought to release him. But the Jews cried out, if you release this man. So here, here's their final play. If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. They went for Pilate's Achilles heel, which is, if I get out of disfavor with Caesar, I'll not only lose my post, I could lose my life. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out. He sat down in the judgment seat at the place called the Stone Pavement. In Aramaic, it is called Gabatha. So it's like the official place of judgment. So Pilate knows he's innocent. The Jews could care less. All they want is Jesus crucified. And so Pilate, in a show of justice, sits in the place where justice is delivered. John wants you to again see the irony of this moment. Injustice is all over this text. Now it was the day of preparation for the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. And he said to the Jews, again, behold your king. And they cried out, away with him, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? And then it happens. The chief priests, the spiritual leaders of the entire country, the people who helped to create spiritual growth in the life of the nation, they say, we have no king but Caesar.
And the rejection of the Son of God is now complete. The blasphemy of the religious leaders is now complete. The equivocation of Pilate is now complete. Jesus, innocent and falsely accused, becomes the greatest example of a wayward world that is completely falling apart. Now, I told you this was a dark text. It has to be dark. You can't put sunshine on this text just walking through the passage. You, you have to say what the text says. But what do we do with it? Let me give you three hopeful conclusions. Because this text is set in a broader text of the entire canon of Scripture. And let me give you three things that I want you to think about. Number one is this. Friend, I want you to know that Jesus has come to rescue us from every effect of the fall. Every effect. He has come not only to rescue us from our individual sin, and praise God that he has come to do that. The sins that we have committed. Jesus died so that individuals could be forgiven of their sin, but he has also come to restore everything that's broken in the world. The Bible says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. The story of the Bible is not just that Jesus cleanses people individually. It is that one day Jesus is going to come back and restore the earth to what it used to be before sin slithered its way into every fabric of our culture. This text shows us how sinful humanity can be and how broken our systems are. As good as they are at one level, they have brokenness built into them. And Jesus comes to rescue us from every effect of the fall. Here's the second thing. Jesus saves people who reject him. Jesus not only comes to rescue us from every effect of the fall, but Jesus saves people who reject him. The power of the gospel is this, is it has the ability to change your story. That one time you were a person who rejected Jesus and then you became somebody who received him. In fact, John begins his gospel with this very hopeful word. He says this in John chapter 1, that Jesus came to his own. It means his own things, his own world. And the text says, and his own people did not receive him. His own people did not receive him. But then John says this, but to all who did receive him, listen to this, he gave the right to become the children of God. The miracle of the gospel is that Jesus rescues people who would reject him and have rejected him, and he not only forgives them, but he actually makes them a part of God's family. At Peter's sermon after the resurrection, the book of Acts records that Peter said to the people who were there in Jerusalem, this Jesus whom you crucified, God has made both Lord and Christ. And in that moment, 3,000 people Confess Christ as Savior and Lord. And what I'm praying is that you, if you're not a Christian, that today would be the day when you confess Christ as Lord. When you look into this text and you see Pilate and you see the religious leaders, that you don't see this anymore. It's just some story in the Bible. Like you're reading this and you're like, man, that's my story. That's how I act. That's what I would have done. I would have manipulated. I would have interrogated. I would have been corrupt. I would have rejected and yet Jesus comes into the world to say, I can rescue that from, I can rescue from that thing that is within you. Namely, your own waywardness. If you're a Christian, can I just remind you of what God rescued you from? And can you just rejoice in God's unbelievable kindness that he rescued you and saved you? 
So Jesus has come to rescue us from every effect of the fall. Jesus saves people who reject him. Here's the third one and last one, and it is this. This is the message of John's gospel. Jesus is king, and he is coming back. This is a dark moment in biblical history. Here is the sinless son of God who is falsely accused. He's beaten, he's mocked, he's rejected. Here's human authority that's used to manipulate and interrogate and corrupt God's common grace. But the thing that John wants you to know is this, that Jesus has more power and more authority than what Pilate or the Jewish leaders could possibly imagine. And when he raises, when he is raised from the dead, he will meet with his disciples at the end of his earthly ministry and he will say this, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So go and make disciples, and I am with you wherever you go. So if you're a weary-hearted Christian today in the midst of a broken world and broken systems and things that are falling apart, and you look, what in the world is going around? Can I just remind you, Jesus has all authority. He has all power. And he issued that edict to his disciples and to us in order for us to live on mission with the promise that he would be with us forever. So friends, we live in a deeply broken world. We live in a world that even the best minds, the best systems that human beings can create, we're seeing their frailty. It challenges us to ask the question, what do I trust in? Where do I place my hope? And the the message from John chapter 17 or 18 and 19 is that at the end of the day, your hope needs to be placed in the one who holds all authority. Or as the hymn writer said, my faith has found a resting place, not in device or creed. I trust the ever-living one, his wounds for me shall bleed. On Christ, the solid rock, I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. Our great King, we thank you for your kindness to us despite our rebellion and our waywardness. And Lord Jesus, there is hardly a time in my lifetime I can remember seeing so much brokenness around me and yet also seeing this brokenness as a means of awakening our souls to who we are and who you are. So we today, Jesus, want to both be humbled and sobered under the limitations of our humanity, and we also want to look to you as the resurrected king who gives life to all those who would put their trust in you. So make us a people full of faith because our king and our kingdom is not of this world. But help us to live in this world as though who know, those who know this king and live out this kingdom ethic. So give us grace, Lord Jesus, to live another week faithfully following you. Because there is no other foundation for our lives than you. On Christ the solid rock we stand. All other ground is sinking sand. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.